These computers now are making over a quadrillion calculations per second. So that allows for more data. More data for us means better modeling. Better modeling means better forecasting. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where for just a few minutes of your day, we provide insights and ideas for keeping safe your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, SVP of Strategic Sales and Alert Media, and I'm joined today by Paul Yura, who is a warning coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service. He has forgotten more about the weather than I will ever know. Paul, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. You're too kind. <laughs> and I do forget a lot. <laughs> well, again, great to have you on the show. I look forward to digging in deeper into our topic, which is the evolution of severe weather response. But before we begin, can you just give our listeners a bit of insight on your background and what you and your team at the National Weather Service do, especially during hurricane season? Uh, sure. So I actually grew up in Austin, um, even as a very uh, young child, about eight or nine years old, I always liked weather. So that's kind of where my interest and love and hobby kind of always was. And so I then went to college, got my uh, degree in meteorology, and then started right working with the National Weather Service right out of college, actually working for the Weather Service while I was in college. So I've been actually with the National Weather Service my entire career, which is, what am I now, over 25 years, getting close to 30 years now in the National Weather Service. A lot of tropical experience, a lot of heat, a lot of severe weather, obviously. That's kind of you know, what the National Weather Service does. We're all about protecting lives and property. You know us most by, we're the ones that push out the, the weather warnings, flash flood warnings, tornado warnings, and even the hurricane warnings. And so a lot of dedicated folks, 122 of those forecast offices across the country, uh, all 24 seven operations. So during really active weather times, it can become a little trying, you know, working graveyard shifts, evening shifts, double duty shifts, 12 hour shifts, uh, all trying to make sure that the information gets out to the public and to the emergency managers, the folks that, you know, really kind of run those cities and county emergency operations centers, evacuating, trying to keep everybody safe, uh, that sort of thing. Well, as you look back on your career overall, how have you seen meteorology change over time? I'll tell you, it's it's been a drastic shift, mainly not because of what I would describe as the science of meteorology. I mean, believe it or not, when I was in college, the textbook that I used for one of the classes was a 50-plus-year-old textbook. Wow. So a cold front has not changed. A low-pressure system has not changed. How it forms has not changed. What we're learning a little bit more in the meteorology is, we'll call it the micro-scale, tornadoes, how tornadoes form, the process of lightning, the process of hail. So not on a 30,000-foot-level meteorology, that's... That's been known now for decades of kind of how it works. What's kind of changed for us has really been the technology that we use to do that forecasting of the meteorology, the newer satellites, the Doppler radars, the, the computer models that we run and the supercomputers that run the models. All of that has changed how we forecast the weather and the meteorology. So that would lead to the question, are forecasts a lot more accurate just across the board than they were as little as 20 or 30 years ago. 
to me, it is yes, <laughs> because I'm the one that does the forecasting. But right. I guess the, the bigger question is, what, what do you think? I mean, for all the people listening to this, you know, how do you think weather forecasting has improved? Hopefully, every one of y'all kind of says, yeah, you know, nowadays when they say a cold front is coming literally three or four, you know, three or four days from now, most likely, probably within about a six-hour window, we're going to get that cold front. Uh, to give you an example of kind of like what's going on right now with the hurricanes, just 20 years ago, 24 hours out, they were on average about 100 miles off from where that center of the storm, the eye of the hurricane, if you will, where right. that would make landfall. They've now cut that in half to now less than 50 miles. Wow. And the same thing, even a 48-hour forecast used to be around an area of 200 miles, just even 30 years ago. And now that's down in between 50 and 75 miles. So it's incredible how science has changed or how the technology has allowed the forecasting aspect to really, really improve. Wow, that's fascinating. So it's, it's just the computing power, basically, that's allowing you to run models and come up with a more accurate assessment of what's happening. Is that it? Exactly. Think about it this way. When I first came into the National Weather Service, we had two weather models to look at. We got them basically two to maybe four times a day. So it was very limited. You either went with this one or that one. <laughs> there weren't a, weren't a whole lot of choices. I mean, or you took an average or you went with your gut feeling. Now, gosh, on a given day, I can look at a dozen weather models. Some of them are run hourly now. And again, mainly because of that supercomputer power that we have. Um, I even did a little look up and, you know, these, these things, these computers now are making over a quadrillion calculations per second. So that allows for more data, more data for us means better modeling, better modeling means better forecasting. You know, it, you remind me of a, a conversation we had in a previous um, webinar that we did together where you said, what do you think as the consumer? Are we getting more accurate? Are the meteorologists giving you a better picture of when things are going to happen? And I think there's a little bit of maybe misunderstanding or lack of education on the consumer side and understanding what you tell us. Specifically, I was wondering if I should turn my sprinklers on and I saw the news said there was like a 40, 30, 20, 40, 50% chance of rain all throughout the day and it never rained anywhere near my house. So can you maybe just explain that again in, in layman's terms that people can get a better idea that even though you're saying it might rain, that doesn't mean it's going to rain and help people understand that. Right. And, and part of the, the meteorology of what we do nowadays, especially using modeling, we are starting to use much more probabilities. We see that now in hurricane forecasting, snowfall forecasting. And, and that's something that especially those emergency managers of the cities and counties really like that probabilistic sort of, of data and information. Now, to the general public, though, right, it's still very confusing. If I say there's a 20% chance of rain for you at your house, basically what that means is that if you take this sort of situation today, the, the variables, the weather data in the atmosphere, 20 out of 100 days, you would actually see rainfall. So you, you, you have to think of the probabilities because, you know, is it something, you know, a 20% chance? Are you going to cancel your, your picnic? Are you going to cancel the, the trip out to the lake? Probably not, but it's something that you have to keep in the back of your mind, and that kind of goes into the preparedness or the preparation that we should all kind of have, even with a 20% day. We have to have alternate plans. We have to know what to do in case we do start to get rained on, or there is lightning, or there's a, a warning that comes out. Well, in that situation, it never rained throughout the day, but I went to bed that night, leaving my sprinkler system on, and of course it ran all night, and then it rained all night too. <laughs> see, see you, you, need to, you need to know the tricks of the trade. So if, if we have a high chance of rain, 
and we want it to happen, we'll immediately go out and wash our car. And we'll also forget to put down the fertilizer. Those are the two things that will guarantee it to rain. That's exactly right. When it comes to responding to severe weather, what, what have you seen out there? Have best practices pretty much remained the same over time, like that 50-year-old textbook? Uh, or have there been any, any, any uh, interesting innovations or new ways of thinking about responding? Yeah, I'll kind of go with it uh, two different ways. One, the first way is let's talk about like just safety rules, for example. Uh, when I was growing up, you, you learned, especially with lightning safety, you learned about the squat. You squatted down. Meaning that if you're outside and you heard thunder and you thought, you know, there was a chance of you getting struck by lightning or lightning striking near you, uh, you squatted down just to make yourself a low target. We don't, we don't teach that anymore. We want people to go in sheltering indoors. So there is, there's, no, there's not many instances anymore that we want people to stay outside and actually squat down in the middle of a thunderstorm. Shouldn't get to that point. Another one that you may have heard back in the day was you open the windows of when a tornado was approaching. Right. And, and the reason for that is they, they thought that homes exploded because of pressure differences. Well, we now know that that's not the case. And I still come across people that, that, that believe that. And I just say, well, the flying debris will open the windows for you. So don't, <laughs> don't waste time with opening up those windows. So that's kind of on the safety perspective. On the, unless I'm talking like a business perspective, you know, preparedness and, and changes of that, one thing we're even kind of seeing nowadays, and this happens especially in the Southeast United States because of recent tornado activity, we have school districts that are canceling school because of a threat of severe weather. Not that there's storms already occurring or not that, you know, there's already a storm spotted and a warning out. We're talking about, you know, 8 a.m. There is no school that day because there's such a high threat of severe weather. So I think a lot of places and businesses this way too, but especially with the schools, have really grasped on the, the threats, the, the possibilities of, geez, what do we do if, you know? And, and there's been obviously many circumstances where there's been schools hit by significant tornadoes, et cetera, and unfortunately some loss of life. But there's a balance out there somewhere is how prepared can you be, should you be? And, and that's where a lot of times there's this play back and forth of, most places aren't shutting down, but some places feel that they have to. So it sounds like we're just as a society getting more hypersensitive to things, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It just, uh, you don't want to take it too far. Like you said, there's a fine line. Co correct. And, and so, you know, the, the pandemic has kind of shown this too. I mean, things that we don't know much of, things that we're not comfortable with, you, you, you see a much more broad scope of canceling because you, you've never dealt with this kind of thing. Uh, there, there's places in the Midwest that deal with tornadoes all the time. So they, they may kind of brush some of these threats off, you know, every day. Just like when we hear about flooding down here in Texas, we get it so often. I unfortunately see a lot of people, they go out traveling anyway, even though they know there's flooding because they just come immune to the, to the whole danger aspect of it. That's right. Well, interesting. It, the, the sensitivity question leads us into our, our next topic, which is, are we seeing a lot more storms and more severe weather than we used to? Is there a trend in that direction? Because it, it definitely feels that way. But I wonder how much of that comes down to just changes in the way we consume news, the 24-7 news cycle, the access to social media, versus how much of it is actually just an increase in severe weather. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So, so there is some data that we can look at to kind of say yes or no to that. Um, and I'll use tornadoes as an example we have seen the actual number of tornadoes skyrocket. 
over the past two decades. But the number of moderate to strong tornadoes has stayed flatlined. So what's that telling us that we're getting a ton of more reports of weak tornadoes? Why is that? Well, just in my career at the National Weather Service, we've seen social media, people carrying around now cameras with them, right, the cell phones. So the reporting of smaller, weaker tornadoes, plus even just storm chasers, we have, we have people driving 500 miles into the middle of nowhere in the West Texas, actually finding and spotting a tornado that would have never been spotted 30, 40 years ago or, or reported. Wow. So, so part of it is a numbers game, you're right. Uh, part of it is the 24-7 news cycle to where there is always something being reported. But there are instances, especially like what you're seeing with, with hurricanes right now, uh, some, some years and seasons where we have an, a very, very active sort of season compared to where we were uh, many decades ago. And we've even kind of seen that. There are decades that are very active with tropical systems, and there are some decades that are very, very, very slow as well. But that's where the technology also comes in, too, because we're now using satellites in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to name a storm, where we didn't do that back in the 20s and 30s and 1940s and 50s. So it's even hard to compare years because technology has changed so much. Reporting has changed so much. You can't, you can't do it apples to apples. You, you can't measure it apples to apples or orange to orange, you know. And, and so that's where it's, it's hard to answer that question just yes or no. Because it depends sure. on, on what you're looking at. So it sounds like we, we are just able to detect a lot more and we're just as a society more sensitive to these things. And that's, that's a huge contributing factor. Right. We, we know there's always been droughts. We know there's always been massive hurricanes that have, you know, just on the Texas coast, you know, back in the 1800s, Indianola, you know, was, was smashed multiple times uh, and basically wiped it off the map. So there's, there's instances like that all the time. It's just now, what do people consider a flood? What do people consider um, a hailstorm? What, what mm. you know, and, and so adding all those numbers up, it's just, it's hard to compare from 50 years ago because we were doing it so differently. Okay. And what's uh, forming this year? Is it, is, I think I read, is it a La Nina? Is that what's going on? Uh, that's right. So what we have forecast coming up for us, especially this fall and winter, is more of a La Nina pattern that tends to be, especially in the southern half of the United States, more of a drought period. So we kind of need some rainfall this time of year right now because if we are going into some of our, our drought, that we, we need obviously the water, the storage, and the lakes, and the, and the aquifers, and everything else. And what else does La Nina typically bring? I, I thought I saw a map where it's going to be unusually colder up north and much warmer and drier down south. Is that right? right. Did I get that wrong? No, no, no. That, that's very accurate, especially in the fall and winter time. That's typically when we see our biggest impacts with El Nino and La Nina cycle is during the, the winter time, typically the southern half of the United States on average remains kind of warm and dry. And the northern part of the United States uh, primarily gets a little bit wetter and also cooler. What it also does is actually enhance the Atlantic hurricane season. Uh, and so one reason why this season may be kind of off the charts already is because of this impact of the, El Ni the La Nina uh, actually kind of increasing so is there anything that businesses should think about or do when they see these broad weather patterns like a La Nina or something like that? Or is it just, just be aware of it and then the things that could come along with it? Yeah, it's, it's just like every year we kind of put out a, a hurricane forecast and we have a, you know, there's going to be 15 named storms. Should a business do something different 
than preparing what they did last year? And I would say the answer is no, because you never know that even it just, it just, we always have this quote, it only takes one storm, right? I don't care if there's only been three named storms in a whole season. The, you know, the, the lowest number ever in a season. Well, if one of them hits you and does massive damage, that that's all that matters. <laughs> it right. doesn't matter how many there were total, right? So preparedness should never be totally judged on what we're expecting, because as we know, we've already talked about, uh, it's an imperfect science <laughs> yes, <laughs> with yes. weather. And, and so I'm not, not going to be the one to kind of tell everybody that this is what you need to be doing because we're forecasting this. Every time you hear a substantial weather event coming or preparing for a season of weather, that's, you know, the preparedness becomes that's much more important. So it's almost like uh, erring on the side of taking the watches as seriously as the warnings. Very much so, because the watch phase, the watch phase is, is your preparedness time. There's no time to prepare during the warning phase. The warning phase is the action time, right? It's the time to evacuate. It's the time to go to a shelter. And you, if you're trying to break out a book and look at the binder and your safety rules and everything else at that point, it, it's going to be too late. That should have already been done pre-season or, like we said, during a watch phase. Yeah, that's interesting. One of our, our clients actually always plans for one level worse than what is actually forecasted when it comes to hurricanes or whatever it might be. And this is a similar thing. It's taking the watch as serious as the warning. So I think that's, that's actually excellent advice for any business. Right. That's actually kind of even what the, uh, the state of Texas, the emergency managers do is they, they always, right. Uh, we give them the forecast and they, it's not that they don't trust us. <laughs> it's just that they, they go one level up just because they want even more wiggle room of kind of what they call a worst case scenario. Uh, and that's kind of what we give them. We give them some weather, worst case scenarios, so they can not get caught off guard. Well, let's shift gears just a bit and, and talk a little bit deeper about the role that businesses play in severe weather response. Have you seen any shifts over the years and what's expected of them? And, uh, you know, basically when it comes to responding to weather related threats? Yeah, especially looking at some of the past events here in Texas, especially the big flood events, they are so monumental in scale a lot of times. Like, let's even just say that the flooding that we've had in Houston over the past five years, uh, some of the things that we've had, uh, flash floods, but especially the large-scale floods, you know, you're inundating a city. The, the, the city and county emergency managers and infrastructure of the city and county, they will not be able to handle that without help. Now, now, granted, most times what they'll do is they have MOUs with nearby cities and nearby counties, states help states, cities help cities, et cetera. And it is be, be a very large community effort at that point to try to get help to a location. But we've also seen a lot of examples, especially from grocery store chains, restaurant chains, of people chipping in their own time, their own money with the corporations coming in with large scale help. You're talking 18-wheelers worth of mobile pharmacies, mobile kitchens, mobile bathrooms, all those sort of infrastructures that you need to set up very quickly in order just to get, you know, if anything, just to help the first responders that are all pooling toward a certain location. You need to be able to help them so they can help everybody else. And if they don't have places to sleep, and if they don't have food, and if they don't have, you know, water, then the first responders can't even do their job. So it's a very much of a domino effect, ripple effect across the community that does actually involve businesses nowadays. That's interesting. Um, yeah, if businesses don't chip in and it, it's like a domino effect and everything falls apart. 
What, um, what about businesses in relation to their employees specifically? Have you seen any, any shift in responsibility that, that uh, they feel toward their employees? Like I know about this, this growing legal and moral obligation of duty of care that's out there now, where if you have somebody that's in your employ or it's a customer and they're on premise, that increasingly there's this expectation that you will take care of them um, while they're there. And that extends for employees to when they're at home. You know, if you call them to come into work and you shouldn't have because there's a storm coming and they get into trouble on the way to work, it's like, who's responsible? So have you seen any shift in attitude from businesses on how they, they treat and communicate with their employees and expectations of them when there's storms and things like that happening? Yes, and, and the answer is, is mainly because I think, you know, everybody is in this together. And especially we've seen this during the pandemic. I mean, if if your business is going to succeed, if your business is going to last, you're going to have to have employees that want to work, that love to work, and, and want to be part of that whole process. It becomes obviously a little bit more difficult, especially now with the, the COVID situation where a lot of us, even myself, have been teleworking. You know, obviously, it's not the same as, you know, if you're at your business with 100 employees and a tornado warning is issued, you know, right, you've got to take all those employees and shelter them in your already predetermined shelter location of your building. Now you have these employees that are all spread out across the city because they're all at the homes. Right. I don't know, you know, it, it's all about keeping everybody safe. Even within our own government agency, we pretty much have that into where uh, if we do have to evacuate a city because of a weather disaster, let's say, like we just actually had with one of the hurricanes around Lake Charles, uh, we have a way of checking up, if you will, uh, sending a text, the email, the, you know, are you safe, all of that. So I think it's becoming more and more popular with businesses of, of kind of trying to keep everybody in that, I'm not going to say a family realm, but you know, a, a togetherness to where you, you do want to make sure that everybody is safe, uh, especially during the severe weather times. Yeah. And it's interesting. You brought it up before the, the mindset previously was I've got a hundred people, 500 people, 10,000 people, whatever the number is in a particular warehouse or office building. And I need to worry about them while they're here, but then you kind of forget about it when they scatter and go home. Yeah. Now, all those 100, 500, 10,000 people are still working day to day, but they're scattered around the city or the county. So are you, are you seeing that companies are changing their mindset and saying, yeah, I need to watch a greater area now. And if I see a tornado coming up a certain area that I've got employees in or a hurricane or something like that, that I need to communicate with them today, whereas in the past, I may not have. Right. One of the actual companies that I know about uh, that does it is an insurance company. And I've been in their operations center before to where they will actually be, uh, let's say there's a tornado warning in a part of a country, they'll actually be calling the employees at the home and letting them know that there's actually a tornado warning in effect for them. Now, they obviously can't do that for you know, a very large city because that would be yeah. you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of calls they would have to be making. But uh, to an extent, they, they have that personalized sort of service which is incredible to me that, you know, but you have to have infrastructure for that. You have to have the technology to be able to do that, do it quickly, have trained personnel. And, and in fact, they actually have some trained meteorologists that take care of this. So um, that's just one example of a company that actually is doing that. I mean, it's literally down to the house phone and, and they're contacting them when there's severe weather approaching their location. Um, well, yeah, just to, to kind of wrap things up a little bit for listeners of this podcast, um, most of them work across, I mean, dozens of different industries, all kinds of size companies. So what's the most common mistake you see businesses make when it comes to severe weather response or preparation? What I see a lot of companies don't do, they don't practice. 
They don't drill. They don't be in, they're not involved with the local county and city emergency management and understand how the process works when there is a disaster. So often, I, the success stories that I see are actually when I do go to a city or county and we are working in a basic, you know, like a tabletop exercise of a weather disaster, there will be some of the local companies there, the ones that are really infused into the operations of the community, and they'll be there practicing too because they know that the city and county will rely on them. They're going to have to rely on the city and county to get the infrastructure back up. So it is a team effort. And if the, the businesses are not practicing these worst case scenarios, and I, I get a lot of times, we, we, have the, we have the nice way of kind of coming up with really horrific uh, exercise um, scenarios, right? You know, a tornado in the middle of a flash flood, in the middle of whatever. And we get a lot of rolling of eyes, right? When we start talking about these scenarios and these exercise rooms. And, you know, I have to say, if there's any time that I can say now, well, do you remember 2020 when we had a pandemic and we had multiple hurricanes hitting at the same time we had tornado warnings ongoing and big flash floods yep. and you throw in some big massive wildfires in the West coast, you know, I, I'm going to have a lot of ammunition nowadays when those people kind of ask me, well, Oh, this is, this isn't realistic. <laughs> right. and, and now I'm going to be able to say, um, yeah, you may not think it's realistic right now, but the reason why you practice some of those kind of crazy multiple scenarios is because there may be an instance and there has been in the past that that comes true. And now you have nobody to respond because you haven't practiced. You don't know what you can and cannot do. So that's the one thing that businesses need to continue to do is practice their emergency spot responding kind of plans. And then what are they going to do, especially like we talked about, how are they going to be contacting their employees to making sure they're safe as well? Yeah, excellent point. I mean, I always tell people that nothing ever goes 100% according to plan when an emergency happens. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to plan and practice. It's not that what will happen is exactly what you plan for. It's that you went through the practice, you went through plans, you created the muscle memory. So when you are faced with an emergency, you're not like a deer in the headlights saying, what do we do? And you establish, like you said, uh, relationships and you network with other people and you know how to bring that community together to respond because you really need that in a really catastrophic event. Exactly. Even though we plan for what's going to happen when a hurricane hits a weather service office, uh, just like we just actually had with uh, Hurricane Laura hitting, hitting Lake Charles, that whole plan that we kind of thought was going to happen, we had to tailor it to that particular situation just because there was another hurricane then coming two days later Man. or three days later. This whole season, I, I'm, I'm confused now with what day it is because of everything seems to be the same. And, and so we had to adapt very quickly and kind of come up with a alternate plan, still getting the end result done. But we're just, we, went, we went to that end result a little bit different than what we had planned for initially. Are you able to dig down into that a little bit deeper? And if you can't, that's okay. But uh, what just happened recently and why your planning worked out so well and the backups that you have for each other? Sure. So uh, historically, what has happened is that, as if they, you know, like I said, there's 122 forecast offices across the country. We have always primarily had one or two offices very close by that can do our job in case we lose communications. Phone line gets cut. Uh, computer system totally fails, whatever. What we ran into, though, um, several years ago was that typically the disaster, if there is one, uh, is also kind of affecting your nearby offices as well. So we came up with a plan that we needed to have a third backup 
literally on the other side of the country that probably is not going to be dealing with that same disaster. And so that's actually kind of what actually happened was that um, at the very end of uh, what was it, August, I believe now, when uh, Hurricane Laura hit Lake Charles, it uh, knocked all of the infrastructure out of Lake Charles. We actually evacuated the Lake Charles office the first time ever we've had to do that with the weather office Man, uh, for Hurricane in particularly. So the Brownsville, Texas office started to back up Lake Charles as well as the Tampa Bay office in Florida backing them up. And actually then we were backing up part of Brownsville office and even San Juan, Puerto Rico was then helping Brownsville. So gosh, I, I lose track. I think there were five or six offices that actually were chipping in all to make sure that everybody's products, everybody's watches and warnings, everybody's forecasts were still going out seamlessly uh, to what the general public would be seeing. And it's been a massive success story. Uh, we've been doing that basically now for three weeks. And so practice helps because we practice that sort of backup at least once a month. We've been doing that practice now for the last couple of years. And wow. tweaks here and there, adjusting some of the stations, who backs up who, you know, all of that comes into play. But it, it's only successful because we've practiced it. That's and right. Forecasters are used to doing somebody else's forecast. That's right. Yep. <laughs> it's a little odd, you know, to do somebody else's city's forecast when you've never lived there before. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, weather is weather. Models are models. And you, you can get through it. And that's what we've done. Well, you don't have to worry about people throwing eggs at your house at night. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know we're there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation on the topic of the uh, evolution of severe weather response. So if anyone listening has follow-up questions for you specifically about this or just wants to connect with you, what's the best way them, wh sorry, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, through email is great. And uh, my email address is paul.ura at noaa.gov. I'm going to spell that out. It's P-A-U-L dot Y-U-R-A, the at symbol, and then N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And is there noah. a- You're at noaa.gov. Okay, sorry. And is there a place that they can go to just get general information as well? Is like a specific website you push them toward with good resources? Uh, so of course, the, the National Weather Service websites, of course, uh, I think are the best place to get weather information. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that's weather.gov. And when you get to the national map of weather.gov, just click anywhere in the country where you live and up will come the local National Weather Service website where you can not only look at our forecast, but also then follow us on social media as well. Okay, wonderful. Well, Paul, thanks again for taking the time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast. And uh, to the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is just vital. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.